0: If there's
1: anything you know about early church history, it's almost definitely about the Council of Nicaea. And if you know anything about Nicaea, I bet it's that the church condemned a guy named Arius, who taught that Jesus wasn't really God. I bet you've heard that Arius was the great arch-heretic of the church, the first guy to really overturn the church's faith. You may have heard that Athanasius bravely and single-mindedly defended the church against this heretical onslaught and, against all odds, ended up restoring the church's faith to its former purity. Well, let's talk a bit about that.
0: Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We are your hosts. I'm Tyler Stanley.
1: And I'm Gerhard Stupen. If you like this podcast, please consider rating us and reviewing us on iTunes. It really helps more than you might think. But before we get into Arius himself, we need to start with our customary drink pairing. We decided to go with Jägermeister. To introduce our drink, we invited a local sommelier and artist, Travis Tarver, from here in the Waco community. So Travis, would you
2: mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about this fine delicacy? Absolutely. Uh, I'm an artist, and I have a master's in mixology and a minor in hops studies, so I'm well-versed in the alcoholic sphere. Um, Well, what we have here, Jägermeister, I'm getting hints of a a dentist's office kind of smell, uh, a shame, and uh, alcoholic gingerbread man. That's the immediate taste I'm getting here. Yeah, oh. It's strong. It's strong stuff, but uh, it takes the stones.
0: We also have with us Sam Davidson, who is an expert on St. Nicholas. That's right, Santa Claus. He'll be joining us later in the podcast, but he's also here to drink this shitty alcohol.
3: It's like somebody lit a stick of licorice on fire and put it in my throat. (laughs) I feel like the um, entire
1: Jersey Shore turned into really bad candy. Mm. Saltwater taffy.
2: Yeah, spot on.
0: I feel at home.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, to some we have familiarity here. So what do you make of this? uh, What do you make of the aftertaste, Travis? Well, at first it kind of hits you and seduces you with nice words and a gentle approach, but then all of a sudden, it it strikes you in the back, and um, it stings. It, it it stings. Not gonna lie, uh, my my eyes are watering, and I I can't really see right now.
0: Oh, where did you get your degree again?
2: I got it on uh, Columbia.
0: <laughs> like online. The... Oh, okay. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> Sam, tell us a little bit more about what you're feeling.
3: Still still a lot of burning, really. You can't really get past the burning. It's really a surprise, actually. I've never had Jaeger
1: before, nor have I ever had a Jaeger bomb, but this is probably the most disgusting
3: alcohol I've ever tasted. It's heavy, heavy anise, I think. Is mm-hmm. what's it does taste like anise. Yeah. It's the, it's the licorice vibe. Is there
1: actually licorice in this?
3: I think there is anise in it. Yeah. yeah. Is there anise in licorice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you know? Hmm. Licorice is like in the anise family. the Whatever the main spices are, anises, as I understand it, huh. from my time in the ice cream. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. Mm. Sam is also an expert on ice cream. That That's actually true. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to Travis and Sam for joining us. Ultimately, we chose Jaeger because, much like being a heretic, Jaeger will get you lit.
1: First off, I want to give a brief survey of the story of Arius and Nicaea, as it is commonly known. This is the account that most people have been taught about Arius and Nicaea. It's the traditional story, and we're including it to get everyone on the same page. That way, when we start to deconstruct and nuance the story later on, you'll know what we're talking about. But, in the interest of honest history, let me be very insistent that you really should not take anything I'm about to say uncritically as true. This is not the actual historical account. This is the traditional, polemical story about Arius. This is what you've probably heard about Arius, if you've heard anything about him. But in the rest of the podcast, we're going to try to untangle the web of half-truths and total falsehoods in the story I'm about to tell. Arius was a priest in Alexandria, Egypt, in the early 300s. This unsuspecting and unassuming little priest went about his daily ministerial duties, preaching in his church and visiting his sick, but slowly began to twist and distort the orthodox teaching that he had received. Influenced more by Greek philosophy than biblical teaching, Arius began to question and overturn the church's beliefs. Though Arius had been clearly taught that Jesus, the Son of God, was fully divine like God the Father, Arius began to insist that this orthodox belief could no longer be retained. No, Arius insisted, there is only one God, not two. Jesus must be a lesser God, like a half God or something. No, not really any God at all, a first creation. God must have created the Son as a super being, sort of like an angel, and told the sun to create the rest of creation. The church was shocked by Arius' strange new teaching. Ever since Paul's day, people had worshiped Jesus, just like they worshiped God. How could Arius say something so blasphemous? The church's leaders rose to the occasion. First, Arius' bishop, whose name happened to be Alexander, the Bishop of Alexandria, He tried to correct Arius, but Arius was obstinate. Arius refused to receive the wisdom and kindness of the correction, and instead went out spreading his heresy more and more. He wrote songs to spread his teaching, one with the catchy little line, there was a time when he was not. He began to convince people to abandon biblical doctrine by arguing with Greek philosophical concepts, and actually succeeded in winning over most people in the Christian church. For a while, it seemed like the entire world was turning Arian. The Council of Nicaea was convened in 325 by the church's bishops, with Emperor Constantine's backing, to deal with this Arian question once and for all. One of the young minds present at Nicaea was a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was the secretary of Alexander, bishop of Alexandria, the, you know, that same one who originally excommunicated Arius, and was strident in refuting Arius's heresy. He insisted, as all Orthodox Christians did, that the Son was truly God, just as divine as God the Father. The council overwhelmingly sided with Athanasius, and thus the celebrated Nicene Creed was born. Arius was also condemned and exiled. After the council, Arius's followers continued to spread his venom, and Athanasius continued to defend orthodoxy with equal passion. Though it seemed that, even after Nicaea, the entire Christian world was Arian, Athanasius continued to fight on for the sake of truth. He was exiled five separate times for his staunch defense of orthodoxy, thus earning the nickname that he is known by even till today, Athanasius Contramundum, or Athanasius against the world. Finally, because the gospel is stronger than any lie and because the gates of hell can never overcome the church, the entire Christian world converted back to orthodox Christianity and had Athanasius' courage, resolve, and flowing pen to thank for it. Arius was judged by God for his sinister subversion of the Christian faith. Towards the end of his life, Arius was called back after years of exile, when he finally agreed to sign the Nicene Creed the bishop of Constantinople was commanded by the emperor Constantine to readmit Arius to the communion. Alarmed by the situation, knowing that Arius was just putting on more trickery to deceive the church, the bishop prayed that Arius would die before arriving in his city. And, instead of explaining what happened to you, I'll read to you from a history book, written around 440 CE, Socrates Scholasticus's Church History. Quote, Meanwhile, the emperor, being desirous of personally examining Arius, sent for him to the palace and asked him whether he would assent to the determinations of the synod at Nicaea. He, without hesitation, replied in the affirmative and subscribed to the declaration of the faith in the emperor's presence, acting with duplicity. The emperor, surprised at his ready compliance, obliged him to confirm his signature by an oath. This he also did with equal dissimulation. The way he evaded, as I have heard, was this. He wrote his own opinion on paper and carried it under his arm so that when he swore truly that he really held the sentiments he had written. That this is so, however, I have written from hearsay, but that he added an oath to his subscription I have myself ascertained from an examination of the emperor's own letters. The emperor, being thus convinced, ordered that he should be received into communion by Alexander, bishop of Constantinople. It was then Saturday, and Arius was expecting to assemble with the church on the day following. But divine retribution overtook his daring criminalities, for going out of the imperial palace, attended by a crowd of Eusebian, that is, Arian, partisans like guards, he paraded proudly through the midst of the city, attracting the notice of all the people. As he approached the place called Constantine's Forum, where the column of porphyry is erected, a terror arising from the remorse of conscience seized Arius, and with the terror of violent relaxation of the bowels. He therefore inquired whether there was a convenient place near, and being directed back to Constantine's Forum, he hastened thither. Soon after, a faintness came over him, and together with the evacuations his bowels protruded, followed by a copious hemorrhage and the descent of the smaller intestines. Moreover, portions of his spleen and liver were brought off in the effusion of blood, so that he almost immediately died. The scene of this catastrophe is still shown at Constantinople, behind the shambles in the colonnade, and by persons going by the finger pointing at the place. There is a perpetual remembrance preserved of this extraordinary kind of death. Unquote. Just like Judas, Arius' punishment for betraying Jesus was dying by having his bowels erupt and pour out of him in the most obscene, disgusting way possible. God saved God's church and judged the great sinner. So let me be clear again. This is how Arius' life, work, and legacy was caricatured by later Orthodox writers. What we've set up to now is what you'll read in traditional retellings of the Nicene controversy, you know, the kind from older textbooks or that you might hear in sermons. But the story isn't quite so clear, and who the good guys are is a bit more murky too.
0: Let us explain. Luckily for us, The controversy involving Arius happens to be right around the time people started writing histories of the Christian Church. Eusebius of Caesarea, who lived through the early period of the Arian controversies of the 4th century, is the most famous. His history starts with the Gospels and works its way through the time of Emperor Constantine, which means it ends just before the Arian controversy really begins. In the 5th century, Rufinus, the same guy who translated Origen's works into Latin, picked up the story from there. But he sucked at writing history. So three other guys wrote their own versions. The first was Socrates. Not that Socrates. He lived about 900 years before this one. And then there was Sozomen, and finally Theodoret. So How did Arius become the most hated man in the empire? We really don't know. And by the way, that's a phrase you're going to hear several times in this episode. Despite the fact that this is one of the biggest events in church history, we know remarkably little about it. Since Arius was the arch-heretic and public enemy number one of the church, they destroyed his books. All we have left of his own writings are fragments from where his opponents quoted him in order to disprove him, and a couple of letters or some songs. Not only that, all those historians of the 5th century trash each other about how bad the other was at writing history. So let's start at the beginning and try to piece this puzzle together the best that we can. We know little of Arius's early life just that he was born sometime in the middle of the 3rd century and grew up in Libya, in northern Africa, just to the west of Egypt. It's possible that he traveled to Antioch and learned under the Christian leader Lucian, but we really don't know. The events leading up to his career as a clergyman are even muddier. Those 5th century historians all disagree with each other on the details, and their own stories are too convoluted to get a very clear picture. But Rowan Williams, in his book Arius, Heresy, and Tradition, reconstructs what he thinks is the most likely order of events, and we'll follow his rough outline. From 303 to 311 CE, Emperor Diocletian enacted the bloodiest persecution of Christians that the empire had ever seen. It was like World War I for Christians of the ancient world. The terror of World War I was so horrific, so unimaginable, that it became known as the Great War. Well, Diocletian's persecution of Christians is known as the Great Persecution. As you can imagine, In the midst of this persecution, Christians were denying their faith in order to escape torture and death at the hands of the empire. According to the traditional account, at this time, the bishop of Lycopolis, a man named Meletius, refused to allow anyone back into communion if they had denied their faith in order to escape persecution, even if they were sincere about repenting from their apostasy. Lycopolis was just to the south of Egypt and it fell under the authority of the bishop of the time at Alexandria whose name was Peter. Peter disapproved of Melidius's rigid and uncompromising position, but Meletius had massive support. His movement, which included almost thirty other bishops, called themselves the Church of the Martyrs, a sign of their commitment to the faith, even in the face of persecution. The controversy caused such a sharp division that this event became known as the Miletian Schism, and Miletius began going through other bishops' territories and ordaining new priests there, which was a really bold move. Now Rowan Williams argues that Miletius wasn't really concerned about accepting or rejecting repentant apostates. He just wanted to sweep in and take power over the churches in North Africa after its bishops and priests were imprisoned or killed due to persecution. And that's definitely possible. There are some traditions which suggest that Melidius ordained Arius, but this is far from certain. In fact, those traditions might just be anti-Arian propaganda to make Arius look bad. Williams says that Arius was most likely ordained as a deacon by Peter, the bishop of Alexandria, and then later ordained as presbyter by Peter's successor, Achilles, who only served as bishop of Alexandria for six months. So, with Christendom divided and reeling from persecutions and schisms and infighting, a new election took place, and Alexander was elected bishop of Alexandria.
1: Before I explain the Church of Alexandria's church structure, I want to make something really clear. When I say, or you read, the church in Alexandria, don't think of a local church. Don't think of First Baptist Church of Waco or Second United Methodist. Rather, the church in Alexandria was a catch-all term which referred to every church in Alexandria. And the most important one was the cathedral. You know, that is where the bishop was the priest of the local church community. Cathedra, as I mentioned in episode 4 on John Chrysostom, means chair in Latin, and referred then and now to the church in which the bishop's chair was. And though the most important one was the cathedral, there were many, many little churches scattered around the city. Each one of those churches had a local priest, which Tyler called and is often called a presbyter, who taught scripture, administered the sacraments, and performed ministerial duties. And, fun fact, the church in Alexandria was doing particularly well in Arius' time, and little local churches were popping up everywhere and really thriving. I think of Texas when I think of Alexandria, not just because it's so hot here, but because there seems to be a little church on every corner of every street, with one or two churches between those corners as well. So, On to Alexandria's church structure. The church in Alexandria had a very interesting, rather unique structure. It was an odd mix of what we might call Catholic and Baptist ways of doing church. On the one hand, Alexandria had one of the most centralized and top-down authority structures in the entire ancient world. In fact, the Bishop of Alexandria was the first bishop to be called Papa or Pope. That's right. Before the Bishop of Rome was called the Pope, the Bishop of Alexandria boasted of the title. It seems that the Bishop of Alexandria functioned as a sort of Pope over the entire Egyptian church. He commissioned and probably nominated the bishops of all the surrounding cities in Egypt. That made the Bishop of Alexandria a very powerful position, like we mentioned in episode 3 on Origin. But, on the other hand, the church in Alexandria was also rather Baptist in its church structure. Though the bishop of Alexandria had quite a bit of power in ordaining bishops around Egypt, in Alexandria itself, the bishop was seen as one among many pastors in the city. He was functionally on par with each little parish priest, each pastor of each local church, and was honored, but not necessarily obeyed, by the many pastors he sort of had authority over. In traditional terms, the Bishop of Alexandria was the first among equals when it came to the priests in Alexandria itself. When looking at this aspect of the Alexandrian church, you might think of the Bishop of Alexandria like you think of the president of a Baptist convention. Not a terribly powerful figure when it comes to Baptist church life, and not actually able to command any Baptist church to change their beliefs or behavior, but an important figure in Baptist tradition nonetheless. So, the bishop of Alexandria had lots of power, but didn't at the same time. But what does that mean for us, and for Arius? Well, because of the relative autonomy of local church priests in Alexandria, lots of rather unorthodox Christian groups survived in Egypt, and they thrived, too. That's one of the many reasons that the so-called Gnostic texts that modern reconstructions of so-called Gnosticism are based on survived in Coptic, an Egyptian language, and were found in Nag Hammadi, a city in Egypt. The church structure in Egypt was perfect for various and disparate versions of Christianity to survive side by side, vying with one another for the hearts and minds of lay Christians. And, I'll remind you from our Origin episode, it was this loose, free-priest model that allowed Origin of Alexandria to work and thrive in the Egyptian metropolis, until, that is, the bishop began to unify Christian teaching in the city. So, Arius began to develop a large following in the Alexandrian church. He was a relatively independent teacher, basically free to follow scripture according to his own devout interpretation, and had no real reason to suspect that Alexander, the bishop, might attempt to silence his theological reflection and teaching. But the times they were a-changing in Alexandria Fresh from dealing with the Melidian Schism, which Tyler talked about earlier, Alexander had just begun to try to tie the disparate priests more closely to the bishop's chair. That is, to control what each priest said in each little church scattered around Alexandria. He was tired of priests going off and teaching what seemed to him to be heresy, and so he tried to unify Alexandrian Christian doctrine. For whatever reason, God saw fit to throw the church into a massive doctrinal struggle. God's providence set up the perfect church political situation for Arius' teaching to come to light and eventually light the match, which set off explosions all around the ancient Christian world.
0: What Gerhard means by God's providence is human free will. (laughs) Moving on. Epiphanius tells us that Arius was a very tall man, but hunched over. He wore a sleeveless tunic, the kind ascetic teachers wore. And he was soft-spoken and gentle. But of course, Epiphanius insists that this was all part of Arius' demonic scheme. He was a heretic, so his piety and gentleness was just an act. An attempt to manipulate unsuspecting victims, to lure them into his trap, and bring them to hell with him. But, let's give Arius the benefit of the doubt, just for a moment, and try to understand what he thought he was doing. Shortly before Arius was born, a new heresy had swept through the land. Sabellianism, or, as it's more commonly known, modalism. It's the belief that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are different forms which the one God takes at different times throughout history. This view was very common in that day, and is still held by oneness Pentecostals today. Arius rightly saw the error in this teaching, and he fought tooth and nail against the idea that God could change in any way. God is unchangeable, he insisted, so God can't become anything. Now, for Arius' understanding of God, we need to go back to Origen, who also fought against modalism and proposed an alternative. Now, this will get a little bit philosophical, so just hang with me for a few minutes. Origen thought that Plato got a lot of things right about God. Most importantly, that God is utterly transcendent. God is unchangeable and perfect and inaccessible by humans. But, if you remember from episode 3, Origen believed in a chain of being. This is part of a philosophy known as Middle Platonism. He believed that all souls, including angels and humans, were emanations which flowed out from God like a cosmic bubble machine, or, to use Origen's own analogy, like the rays of the sun. The rays of the sun are not the sun itself, but they are extensions of its essence. So the logos, the word of God mentioned in John 1, is the first emanation from God, an origin called the logos a deuteros theos, or a second God. Admittedly, This sounds super heretical, but remember that Origen lived a long time before the Council of Nicaea. He lived a long time before our language of Trinitarianism developed, and he was doing the best with what he had. He definitely was not a polytheist, and he strongly believed that there is only one God. Now, since God can't change, and since God is outside of the realm of time... How can we say that God created anything? If we say that God created the earth, doesn't that mean that God changed? That God started doing something which he wasn't doing before? That's not possible because God can't change. And what is this business about the Logos being begotten by God? How can God beget someone or something? Have no fear. Origin has an answer that will fix everything. Sort of. If God does anything, then it has to be something that he does for all eternity so that he never changes. And what is the thing that God does for all eternity? He begets his son, the Logos. And this means that the Logos is eternal with God. The Logos shares in God's divinity, and we can rightly call him God. You may also remember that Origen was obsessed with words, and as a skilled linguist and scholar, he paid extremely close attention to the spelling and use of every word in Scripture. Naturally, he was careful with his own words as well. Since the Logos is a sort of second God which is begotten by the Father, but is still God, Origen distinguishes between them by calling the father ha-theos, or the God, and the son, theos, which is just God. Here's where things get really fun. Since the son is not the God, the son can begin an action and end an action. Since the Son is from God's very nature, He also has the power of God, or more precisely, He is the power of God, along with the Holy Spirit. So the Son creates the world, and is how God interacts with the world. The Son is the mediator between this utterly transcendent God and God's creation. So for Origin, the God is impersonal and completely separate from creation. But God, the Son, is personal and interacts with creation as the perfect representation of God. Proverbs 8 is the first place that Origen and others will go to describe their theology. By the mid-second century, everyone considered Proverbs 8 to be a description of Christ, or the Logos. In it, Wisdom speaks about her own creation and how she helped God create the world, and for Origen and pretty much everyone else, Wisdom, or Sophia, is just another name for Lagos. Listen to verses 21 through 31. Quote, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth. While He had not yet made the earth and the fields nor the first dust of the world, when He established the heavens, I was there when He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when He set for the sea its boundary so that the water could not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside Him as a master workman, and I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him, rejoicing in the world, His earth, and having my delight in the sons of men, End quote. So there's your proof, not to mention Colossians 1.15, where Paul says that Christ is the, firstborn of all creation. So you could say Origen was a subordinationist, that he believed that the Son is eternally lesser than God but to be honest, this was the only conceivable alternative to modalism, which he completely rejected. Within the generally accepted views of his day, if you weren't a modalist, you were a subordinationist, until Arianism comes around. Arius was obviously influenced by Origen in profound ways, but we should be careful not to blame Origen for creating Arianism everybody was influenced by Origen in some way or another, and everyone championed different aspects of his theology. The guy was a legend. But nobody really bought into or championed Origen's entire system. So, how did Origen's teachings play out in the teachings of Arianism? Well, first, Whenever we talk about Arianism, we should put it in scare quotes. In fact, anytime you hear us use that word, just imagine us making air quotes with our hands. Because there's really no sustained belief system that we can call Arianism. In fact, most of the people who are called Arians in the ancient world weren't technically Arians. As I explained in our last mini-episode on the definition of heresy, I explain that controversies over heresy in the ancient world, much like today, were often political rather than doctrinal. Most of Arius' earliest supporters are either ignorant of what he actually taught or only agreed with parts of it, but they together opposed Bishop Alexander's authoritarianism or his theology. Remember, power struggles have been brewing in Alexandria for a while now. So, To get back on topic, we can see Origen's indirect impact on Arius pretty clearly just by outlining the logic of Arius' argument. What matters the most for Arius is protecting the integrity of God as one, as the only one, as the holy other and transcendent one. God is unreachable by humans, so he must reach down to us. But, As the Holy Other and Transcendent One, God cannot be divided, because God is not made up of different parts. God is what they called a monad. I'll let Arius explain this for himself. He says in a letter to Bishop Alexander, For when giving to the Son the inheritance of all things, the Father did not deprive himself of what he has without beginning in himself, for he is the source of all things. Thus, there are three subsisting realities, and God, being the cause of all that happens, is absolutely alone without beginning. But the Son, begotten apart from time by the Father and created and founded before the ages, was not in existence before his generation, but was begotten apart from time before all things, and he alone came into existence from the Father. For he is neither eternal, nor co-eternal, nor co-unbegotten with the Father, nor does he have his being together with the Father, as some speak of relations, introducing two unbegotten beginnings." But God is before all things as monad and beginning of all. Therefore, He is also before the Son, as we have learned also from your public preaching in the Church. End in other words, it cannot be true that there were two beings that existed from all eternity. Since God cannot be divided, we have to say that the Son was created but the sun's creation is before everything else, even before time. So we have to say that there was a time when the sun was not. So what makes Arius different from Origen and from other Middle Platonists is not simply that he believes that the sun was created, but also that he believes the sun was created from nothing. This protects God's unity and his transcendence. There is nothing and no one who existed eternally with God. But by his will, God created the Son. And Arius recognizes the Son as a second God, much like Origen thought. But only the Father is true God. All of the attributes of God are true of the Son, but only to a lesser degree. So God is all-powerful, and the Son is the most powerful of all creatures. The sun is the most godly of all creatures. Now, you might be surprised to hear that Arius did not view himself as any sort of revolutionary. He thought of himself as a conservative, as a champion of the apostolic teaching handed down through the generations and explained by Alexandria's greatest teachers, such as Origen. In the passage I read just a moment ago, Arius says to Alexander that You yourself taught that God is the beginning of all things, including Jesus, right? Listen to the opening lines of that same letter. Quote, To our blessed Father and Bishop Alexander, greetings in the Lord. Our faith from our forefathers, which also we learned from you, blessed Father, is this. We acknowledge one God, alone unbegotten, alone everlasting, alone without beginning, alone true, alone having immortality, alone wise, alone good, alone sovereign, judge, governor, and provider of all, unalterable and unchangeable, just and good, God of the law and the prophets and the New Testament, who begat an only begotten Son before time and the ages, through whom He made both the ages and all that was made, who begot him not in appearance but in reality, and that he made him subsist at his own will, unalterable and unchangeable, the perfect creature of God, but not as one of the creatures, offspring, but not as of the other things begotten, nor as Valentinus pronounced, that the offspring of the Father was an emanation, nor as the Manichaeans taught that the offspring was a one-in-essence portion of the Father, nor as Sibelius, dividing the monad, speaks of the Son-Father, nor as Hierakos, speaks of the one torch lit from another, or as a lamp divided in two, nor that he who existed before was later generated or created anew into a Son, as you yourself, O blessed Father, have often condemned both in church services And in council meetings. But, as we say, he was created at the will of God, before time and before the ages, and came into life and being from the Father, and the glories which coexist in him are from the Father. In a letter to his friend and supporter, Eusebius of Nicomedia, Arius describes how Alexander is persecuting him and his followers. After explaining Alexander's belief that the Son is co eternal with God, Arius says, quote, We are not able to listen to these kinds of impieties, even if the heretics threaten us with 10,000 deaths. So, as you can see, Arius saw himself as a defender of the truth. He believed he was defending the church against heresy. In his mind, he was a conservative pastor. He thought that Alexander was the one importing these foreign, unchristian philosophies into Christian doctrine. But the winners get to tell the story, and the winners of this story turned Arius into a monster so vile he would become the arch-heretic, the Judas Iscariot of the church. But why? What made Alexander so enraged at Arius? I mean, sure, Arius was teaching different ideas, but as Gerhard explained earlier, priests were relatively free to teach what they believed. And it's not like people were perfectly Trinitarian back then. Confessionally, they believed Father, Son, and Spirit were God, but the formulation wasn't completely there. And as I researched for this and read the modern historians trying to make sense of how this little priest caused one of the biggest controversies in Christian history, I couldn't help but think of this as a Franz Ferdinand situation. Remember in your Western history class when you talked about the events leading up to World War I? Franz Ferdinand was the Archduke of Austria-Hungary, and the heir to its throne. And Serbia was trying to expand into Bosnia, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but Bosnia wanted its own independence. So, when old Franny goes for a visit to Bosnia, some Serbian nationalists assassinated him. To oversimplify things, Austria-Hungary thought that the Serbian government orchestrated the assassination and Serbia said, screw you guys, and got Russia, France, and Britain to show their muscle. So, Austria-Hungary got Germany, Italy, and the Ottomans together, and the Great War commenced. When we look at the grand scheme of things, Franz Ferdinand is kind of just a blip on the radar. He wasn't that big of a deal. But Europe was a powder keg, and the assassination of Franz Ferdinand was the spark that blew it up. That's kind of what it was like for Arius. Arius was not the only one teaching these ideas, but he happened to teach it in Alexandria, the center of intellectual life, not only for Christianity, but for the whole world. It held sway over the worldwide church, and the power it held was becoming more and more sought after. So, as you can imagine, the bishop needed his priests to be unified and submissive bishops throughout the entire christian world began choosing sides and the great controversy commenced
1: as part of alexander's work to unify the alexandrian church around one gospel and one basic doctrine of god alexander inevitably came into conflict with arius After attempting to correct what he thought was aberrant in Arius' teaching, and after his attempted correction was rejected by Arius, Alexander excommunicated Arius. He attempted to remove Arius from his church, from the Alexandrian church, and strip him of his ecclesial authority. As you might imagine from my description of the Wild West-like church polity of ancient Alexandria, though, Arius refused to give in without a fight. After being excommunicated by Alexander, Arius wrote to bishops of other important cities in Christendom. Among the most important bishops that Arius appealed to and received support from were Eusebius of Nicomedia and Eusebius of Caesarea. You may know Eusebius of Caesarea as the author of the famous Ecclesiastical History, the first real book of church history, as Tyler mentioned earlier. These bishops began to write in support of Arius and campaign for his reinstatement as a priest in Alexandria. A flurry of letters, encyclicals, and polemical tracts then ensued, the supporters of Arius and the bishop of Alexandria engaging in a fiery and fierce war of words. As the battle raged, Arius seems to have returned to Alexandria with a group of followers and begun his own little community of Christians he in effect set up a rival church to that under Alexander's authority and continued to promote his understanding of the God of the Bible. One God, one son of God, not to be confused. The story then followed a predictable, though tumultuous, track from that point on. Arius promoted his vision of Christianity in Alexandria and beyond, traveling to gain support in Syria and around the Christian world, and writing to spread his teaching. Most importantly, and like Martin Luther, Arius wrote songs containing his teaching. These songs spread everywhere in the Christian world and gripped the popular imagination like no dense theological treatise ever could. Men plowing in fields sang about how, quote, we worship him as timeless in contrast to him who in time has come to exist, Women washing clothes hummed about how Jesus, quote, is not equal to, nor is he of the same nature as the Father, unquote. People doing other gender stereotypical things reminded themselves in song about how, quote, there is a triad not equal in glories, unquote. These little verses are collected in a text called the Thalia, or the Banquet. It was probably a text written by Arius as a clear expression of his views on the Son of God, and today only survives in quotation by his opponents. So, Arius campaigned for his Christological doctrine, and many influential bishops supported him in this work. Eusebius of Caesarea, again, author of the famous ecclesiastical history, Seems even to have invited Arius to form little communities in Caesarea after Alexander excommunicated him. The arguments grew protracted, grew heated, and started to create fault lines in the church's unity, which, when you consider the time period, was a very problematic fact. The church had, until very, very recently, been a marginalized and persecuted little minority on the fringes of the Roman Empire. The Edict of Milan, The decree of religious toleration in the Roman Empire issued by Constantine that gave Christians the right to worship freely wasn't issued until 313. That is right in the thick of the Arian controversy, only a few years before when Arius was probably excommunicated. The church was floating on very thin, very unstable ice when the controversy surrounding Arius exploded around the Roman Empire. Some reports tell of actual violence in the streets, people literally and physically attacking one another because of their precise beliefs about how God the Father and God the Son were ontologically related. It was a disturbing and turbulent time indeed. Constantine, the new emperor of Rome, was deeply troubled by the schisms erupting in the Christian church. Though Constantine seems not to have cared all too much about precise theology, and probably agreed mostly with Arius's teaching about Jesus. The turmoil that the church's factiousness threatened to embroil the Roman Empire in was too risky for Constantine. And so Constantine supported a worldwide council called by all of the bishops from all across the Christian world, and decided that they would meet in Nicaea and decide on this matter once and for all. Constantine even paid their travel expenses out of the imperial treasury. Thus, in 325, one of the most decisive moments in all of Christian history was initiated, though no one at the time understood just how cataclysmically important the event was. In 325, somewhere around 300 bishops, representing the entire Christian world, convened in the town of Nicaea, on the western edge of what is now Turkey. Included among those 300 or so bishops was the man we now know as Santa Claus or St. Nicholas Well, maybe uh, That's Sam Davidson, our local expert on St. Nicholas And we asked him to uh, come and explain a little bit about Nicholas So
3: how do you want to start this off, Sam? I think we could start with Nicholas's relation to the Council of Nicaea Does that seem like a good place to start? Yeah, sounds great so, in addition to the possibility that Nicholas himself was not a historical figure, there is debate as to whether or not he was present at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, so as a bishop, he was the Bishop of Mira um, in Turkey. He would have certainly been invited to Nicaea, and the roles the extant roles that we have from the council uh, differ and disagree as to whether or not he was there. so he is found in six total extant roles uh all of which tallied the total attendance of bishops at over 300 uh, while he is missing from all of the extant lists that count fewer than that so the records are seemingly split uh, you can read that evidence in whatever way you want to um, but according to strict historical observation we're not quite
0: sure so you're telling me that scholars have as much of a problem with the existence of Santa Claus as children do?
3: That's right, Tyler. Uh, there, interestingly, is no uh, record of Nicholas's own thought. He never wrote anything uh, that we have, and no contemporary uh, thinkers uh, refer to anything he ever said or did. It's not until about a century after his life that we have the earliest extant reference to him. It's pretty late. Though, is that an unordinary thing for ancient bishops? Certainly not an extraordinary thing that he would not have been uh, cited by his peers. This is not 21st century SBL. Um, (laughs) There's every chance that he could have existed, lived an exemplary life as Bishop of Mira, and never written anything of consequence or never written anything at all. Uh, So there is a guy, uh, Gerardo Chiafari who is the world's expert on the historical St. Nicholas. He's from Italy, as his name might indicate. Trafari believes uh, that Nicholas was present uh, based on what he considers the most reliable list of attendees at the council, uh, which was compiled in 515 by Theodore, the lector of Constantinople. So I think what
1: all, uh, all the listeners really want to hear is what you think about that story where Nicholas punches a guy. And for those who may not have heard of that, why don't you uh, tell the story a little bit?
3: Uh, I have in front of me Adam English's uh, rendering of this legend. English wrote an excellent book a few years back. It's called The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus. Uh, It's probably the most comprehensive study of the available information about the historical Nicholas and uh, his legend and his hagiography. So I can read that real quick. This is uh, from The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus. Uh, English writes, another tradition reported that when the good bishop from Mira, Nicholas being from Mira, heard Arius spouting blasphemy before the council and declaring that the son was not equal to the father and that Jesus was less than fully divine, he leapt to his feet and slapped Arius on the face. Although Nicholas might have been justified in his righteous indignation, his example of poor collegiality and lack of self-control could not be tolerated. No one should ever commit an act of violence in the presence of the emperor. Constantine deferred Nicholas's punishment to the bishops. They had him bound and incarcerated for a time. He was stripped of his bishop's robes, and Roman guards burnt off his beard. In essence, he was defrocked. But while Nicholas was confined to his sad and dark cell, the Virgin Mary and her son Jesus appeared in resplendent light and placed on his shoulders a stole of pastoral ministry and in his hands copy of the gospel, a symbol of sound teaching. The heavenly visions also appeared to Constantine, who immediately ordered Nicholas released. Nicholas's robes were returned to him, but at the time of the celebration of the Mass, he still could not bring himself to put them on. His heart had been defeated. Then, at the moment he was to pronounce the opening words of the celebration, Mother Mary and the angels descended from on high with stole and meter in hand. When those in attendance came to greet him after the service, they found his face glowing and his charred beard restored to its former thick black luster. It's great. So what do you think about that story? Uh... Yeah, so there's uh, there's not a lot of evidence for it. One mitigating factor being that Arius, being not a bishop, was not at the Council of Nicaea. So that throws a kink in that story. Uh, Also, the first reference to this story is in the 11th century, I believe. So it's almost certainly uh, hagiographic material building up around Nicholas lore.
0: So do you think it's safe to say that people should stop sharing those memes at Christmas about uh, Santa Claus being all out of presents? and ready to punch some heretics
3: yeah that doesn't seem to be entirely doesn't fit with quite with the historical record
0: or with the teachings of jesus
3: or with yeah that's certainly that as well uh so sam before you go i hear that you have a favorite nicholas legend yes i do so nicholas lore uh is replete with trios uh commending his ardent zealous trinitarianism for which he allegedly slapped arius uh Also a fun fact, Nicholas is the patron saint of pawnbrokers. Uh, If you've ever seen a pawn shop with the symbol of the three orbs hanging in front that kind of looks like it's like a globe hanging down, there's three of them. That's actually symbolic of Nicholas's ardent Trinitarianism. Uh, My particular favorite story is called The Three Clerks. A very early story, one in which uh, in the earliest versions, three clerks or three young clergymen, maybe clergymen in training, uh, are j- on a long journey and they stop at a roadside inn in the middle of nowhere where they have dinner go to bed and are then murdered and robbed by the innkeeper and his wife saint nicholas uh suddenly appears to the innkeeper and his wife uh scolding them and convicting them of their sin now this story develops over time and in its uh most gory and interesting form uh it's no longer three young clergymen but three boys the boys arrive at the hotel, desperate, needy, and they have their dinner, go to bed, are murdered by the innkeeper and his wife, but it doesn't stop there. They, are, they then dismember the three boys, grind them up into meat pies, and serve them to customers to make a profit. Uh, in this version, St. Nicholas appears to the innkeeper and his wife, scolding them, of course, for their sinfulness, and also reconstituting the boys out of their pickle, because they've been put in pickling basins. Uh, in order to be cured as meat for meat pies, so that is my favorite personal Nicholas story. Wow, it's that... qu- it's quite a th- it's quite a scene.
0: Yeah, that's great. And is that a true story?
3: Uh, the the historical records, of course, differ on this.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. All right,
1: Sam. Well, thanks for uh, coming and spreading some Nicholas knowledge on us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's some been great. Christmas cheer. Absolutely,
3: so... for all to hear.
0: Now, you may notice that we've been pretty critical of Alexander and those who fought against Arius, and we've been very charitable to Arius himself. But our project here is not an attempt to revive Arianism. In fact, we both affirm the Nicene Creed. We believe that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, truly God with us. We also don't want to do what Bart Ehrman and others attempt to do and say that there were many Christianities and the winners at Nicaea were just playing power games and trying to squash the minority groups. We believe that some form of Trinitarian teaching reaches back all the way into the New Testament. I mean, it's hard to get around the baptism scene with the Father, Son, and Spirit all represented, and Jesus calls himself the I Am. Paul calls Jesus Lord, Kyrios, which is what Jews, like Paul himself, called Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. But, there is an obvious diversity within Christianity, just as there is within every social group, especially within religions. As I explained in our last mini-episode on heresy, as Christians started trying to answer difficult questions, the church as a whole did its best to clarify what they already believed the Bible taught about God and about his interaction with the world. And they did this through creeds. So, historically speaking, even though there were some unfortunate and even malicious people playing power games, Nicaea was, on the whole, necessary and good. It was also theologically necessary and good.
1: Like Tyler said, we are Nicene Christians. We're not out to revive Arianism because we think Nicaea was correct. We believe that Jesus was and is God, was and is the God, Hatheos in origins and Arius' terms. We believe that Jesus is as divine as God the Father, or as the creed puts it, is, quote, true God from true God. At the end of the day, the Orthodox Christians were right to insist that there's a strict difference between the categories God and not God. There's no gradient, no half-gods. To believe differently really compromises the Bible's monotheistic vision. There is a God, one God, who is cosmic and supreme and perfect. And that perfect God is the, quote, creator of everything visible and invisible. That means rocks, trees, worms, plagues, parasites, persons, angels, and demons. And because scripture puts Jesus in the category of God, rather than not God, as Tyler just argued, then it follows that Jesus is the one God. We're not modalists either, of course. We think that there's a real difference between God the Father and God the Son, but we can't tell you what that difference is. We don't try to comprehend everything in the universe. We don't think we're that smart. We don't think anyone is. I don't understand how some subatomic particles can be in two places at once, and that's, that's true. But I believe it because all the evidence points in that direction, and because I don't think my own mind is the measure and standard of all truth. I think God knows how subatomic particles can be in two places at once, just like God knows how there can be only one God, but also a distinct Father, Son, and Spirit. But I'm not God, and neither are you. Rather, we in humility choose to believe the theory which makes best sense of the evidence, which is, in this case, scripture, which we believe in for, you know, other reasons, and leave the details up to the only one who really knows anyway, God. So, the Creed and Council of Nicaea solved the problem of so-called Arianism once and for all, right? Wrong. Dead wrong. After Nicaea, things probably just got more out of control and confusing. Theological battles over the issue of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son continued to wage, continued to increase in pitch, and showed no signs of resolution for about 60 years. That's a long time. Presumably, there were people who were born in the early stages of the Arian controversy, let's say around 310 lived their entire lives while this explosive controversy raged, and died well into old age before it even got close to a resolution. Imagine living your entire life during one long, protracted theological controversy. That seems really tiring, especially for us who work in religious fields. Anyway, after the Council of Nicaea, all of the bishops went home and, as our professor at Baylor, D.H. Williams, puts it, promptly ignored the council's decision. It basically isn't mentioned, especially in the eastern half of the empire, for the next 20 years, even while controversy over Arius' teaching continues on. And there were many, many more little local councils that met and wrote creeds attempting either to overturn or improve Nicaea. As Tyler mentioned before, modalism was very popular in the ancient Christian world. But, for that reason, it was also viciously attacked by theological writers in the 4th century. No one wanted to be labeled a modalist. Well, the churches in the eastern half of the empire were particularly unhappy with the way the Nicene Creed turned out, and all thought that it implied a crass form of modalism. The phrase, one substance with the father, or in Greek, "homoousios to patro, seemed especially to be amenable to modalist interpretation. So the eastern bishops convened councils attempting to overturn Nicaea, and western bishops responded with councils of their own. This kept going on and on until, in 343, the Council of Serdica was announced. It was an olive branch extended across the isle, an attempt to once again unify the church, but it failed in the most miserably, terrible, fantastic way possible. The attendees to the council were housed at the imperial palace in Serdica, and the eastern bishops were carefully sectioned off from the western bishops. Lots of red tape set up between them so they wouldn't accidentally interact outside of official meeting times. Who knows, maybe a fight would break out or the ecumenical attempt would be ruined. Well, two Eastern bishops who had been excommunicated from the larger group managed to sneak over to the Western bishops' area and join them. They hoped that the Western bishops would overturn the Eastern bishops' decision. This infuriated the Easterners, who left the council on an obvious pretext, saying that their emperor's victory over the Persians required them to return to their bishoprics. You know, about as convincing as saying, you know, I left the stove on back in Ohio It was a huge debacle. It ended in even less understanding than there was previously. As R.P.C. Hansen succinctly writes in The Search for the Christian Doctrine of God, the Easterners branded all the Westerners as Sabellians, the Westerners stigmatized all the Easterners as Arians, and both charges were equally ridiculous. Absurdity, confusion, and hilariously strange quibbling That was the history of the church from Nicaea on for the next 60 years or so, and since this is an episode about Arius in Nicaea, we're going to leave you right in the thick of that confusing, troubling, contentious aftermath.
0: Now that you're thoroughly confused about who Arius was, what he taught, and why he's the most demonic and vile person in church history... You're now equipped to pronounce judgment of heresy on all the people you don't like in your own church, just like Athanasius did. So tune in to our next mini-episode, where Gerhard will explain the Nicene Creed, and our next full episode, which will be on Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor. Or was he? So in the words of Barnabas, farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen.